Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 30th day of December, 2007. I'd like to invite all my listeners to the Corbett Report website, www.corbettreport.com, where you can find a documentation list sorted by time index with links to all of the sources for the information used in today's episode. On the website, you'll also find articles written by the Corporate Report and frequent contributors regarding some of today's most important news issues. And on that note, it's time for the real news. This article comes from the Corbett Report, December 28, 2007. Budo fingered Musharraf, Neocon's finger Al-Siaida. In the wake of Benazir Budo's assassination Thursday, the flurry of initial reports were necessarily based on incomplete information and guesswork. Was she killed by the bomb blast, the bomber's gun, or shrapnel from the bomb? Was she killed by an AK-47 or the handgun that has been shown on Pakistani TV lying in a splatter of blood on the scene? Initial reports were not even sure if she had been injured by the blast, let alone killed. It's strange, then, that the neocons, through an article released almost immediately by their mouthpiece, the Weekly Standard, were quick to dismiss the idea, which they attributed to Budo supporters, that Budo had been killed by Musharraf. But this attack was most likely carried out by the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, the neocons assert, with a remarkably conclusive tone. There was not even time to question why they were so certain of this fact before the Department of Homeland Security started touting that Al-Qaeda had indeed taken responsibility for the attack. Although even the usually unquestioning CNN points out that the report has not appeared on radical Islamist websites that regularly post such messages from Al-Qaeda and other militant groups. No, the Department of Homeland Security had issued their bulletin based solely on a story circulated by Aden Kronos International, an Italian news agency. Also this week, a report from usdaily.com entitled Denmark Bank Predicts Ron Paul Presidency, U.S. Depression. This comes from Boxing Day, December 26, 2007. Denmark-based Saxo Bank predicts Ron Paul presidency in 2008. According to Pravda.ru, the bank predicts Paul will be the next president and that the U.S. economy will plunge into a depression prior to the election. Saxo Bank says the U.S. economy will shrink by 25% and the Chinese economy will decrease by 40%. The economic downturn will come about as a result of the housing crash. Ron Paul has been critical of the Federal Reserve and has blamed the Federal Reserve for causing the real estate bubble and crash. Paul has said that the loose monetary policy of the Fed had artificially inflated real estate prices, which led to the collapse. Paul supports sound money and opposes the Federal Reserve's inflation tax and says that he wants to prevent a dollar collapse. On December 16th, grassroots activists organized an online protest of the inflation tax and donated a record $6 million to Paul's campaign in one day. Finally, from News Target, we have this story, The Great Human Papillomavirus Vaccine Hoax Exposed, from December 28, 2007. For the last several years, HPV vaccines have been marketed to the public and mandated in compulsory injections for young girls in several states based on the idea that they prevent cervical cancer. Now, News Target has obtained documents from the FDA and other sources which reveal that the FDA has been well aware for several years that human papillomavirus has no direct link to cervical cancer. 
News Target has also learned that HPV vaccines has been proven to be flatly worthless in clearing the HPV virus from women who have already been exposed to HPV, which includes most sexually active women. Calling into question the scientific justification of mandatory vaccinate everyone policies. Furthermore, this story reveals evidence that the vaccine currently being administered for HPV, Gardasil, may increase the risk of precancerous cervical lesions by an alarming 44.6% in some women. The vaccine, it turns out, may be far more dangerous to the health of women than doing nothing at all. Today's episode is entitled Meet the Rockefellers, and as you might surmise by such a title, we'll be dealing primarily with the famed Rockefeller dynasty. Most people are aware of the Rockefellers as a key force in American business and politics from the late 19th and early 20th centuries, with John D. Rockefeller being, of course, the head of the famous or infamous Standard Oil which was broken up in the early 20th century as a vertical monopoly which controlled all aspects of oil production, refining, and distribution in the United States. Many are also vaguely aware that the Rockefellers have since then gone on to do great philanthropic work in the United States under the auspices of the Rockefeller Foundation, to which the famed head of the Rockefeller dynasty, John D. Rockefeller, entrusted the family fortune, administered by his son, John Jr. These are some of the basic tenets of the Rockefeller family history, but for a slicker view of the central memes of the Rockefeller family story, let's turn to a documentary which was filmed in 2000 for American Experience. Entitled quite simply The Rockefellers, this three-hour documentary opens with the following synopsis of the Rockefeller family history. They feared the temptations of wealth, yet a visitor once described their estate as the kind of place God would have built, if only he'd had the money. They amassed a fortune that outraged a democratic nation, then gave it away, reshaping America. They were the closest thing the country had to a royal family, but the Rockefellers shunned the public eye retreating behind the walls of their palatial home at Pocantico, New York. My own personal experience as a child is of a place that on the one hand was something of an Eden, was serene and beautiful. As we grew up, a number of us began to experience Pocantico also as something of a prison that cut us off from the larger world. The family found themselves haunted by the controversy surrounding John D. Rockefeller, king of Standard Oil. Vilified as a ruthless predator, as evil incarnate, he had created an industrial empire and a personal fortune on a scale the world had never known. The great drama for the Rockefellers is to deal with the wealth, to deal with it as a physical fact, to deal with this, this fortune as growing day by day in a way they can't control anymore. 
but also they have to deal with the fact of this money as a moral fact. How do you control it? How do you control yourself? In the drama of the Rockefellers, John D. Jr. was cast in an almost impossible role. Here was the son of the most controversial businessman in America who had to figure out, by sheer force of character, a way to change the image and the direction of this family without openly repudiating this father he loved. In his quest for redemption and respectability, John D. Jr. would push his family to the pinnacle of American power. One of his sons would reach for the highest prize, the presidency, and provoke a new generation's rage and hostility. For more than a century, the Rockefellers' wealth and influence have attracted both attention and suspicion, and threatened to tear the family apart. Why do we want to preserve this power? Why do we want to devote our lives to maintaining all these institutions that have been created by the family? Uh, what is the purpose of all of this? And I think for many of us, we came to realize that the real problem of life is the integration of power and goodness. Ah, American is apple pie, isn't it? And as the Disney documentary caliber horns and strings swirling in the background might denote... The general tenor of this documentary is, unsurprisingly, that of a whitewash of the Rockefeller family fortune. I say unsurprisingly because, of course, this documentary, American Experience, is broadcast on PBS, whose leading station, WETA, based out of Washington, just happens to have as a chief executive officer a Mrs. John D. Rockefeller IV. A fact that even the most basic tenets of journalistic integrity would have required the program to disclose ahead of time. But leaving that aside, the documentary does present some of the main ideas that the public has about the Rockefeller family in a fairly succinct way. It starts by presenting the idea that John D. Rockefeller, in setting up his Standard Oil monopoly, grew to incur the wrath of everyday Americans, who, it, the documentary implies, were mostly jealous of his fortune. The documentary doesn't go into great detail about the illegal practices that he used in setting up his Standard Oil monopoly, or the downright immoral things that were done in the pursuit of the Rockefeller family fortune. But that is mainstream history, and I suggest you go study that for yourself. Today, I'd like to dwell on the second part of the Rockefeller family story, dealing with the second generation, John Jr., John D. Rockefeller Jr., of course, was entrusted with the Rockefeller family fortune in the form of the Rockefeller Foundation. The setting up of the foundation was John D. Rockefeller Sr.'s last diabolical move in his political power play at the time to keep the Rockefeller family fortune in the family's control, without a single penny of that fortune going to the government. Setting up such a foundation is an option that's really only on the table for the elite super-rich who have billions of dollars to their name. 
In setting up such a foundation, these family fortunes can completely avoid government taxation, these taxum-exempt foundations avoiding all public scrutiny. But surely some of my listeners might be wondering, what could be wrong with taking these massive family fortunes accrued in illegal or highly unethical ways by the capitalist robber barons and putting them into these tax-exempt foundations which will work on such a philanthropic basis to promote the greater good of humanity? What could be wrong with that? Well, let's start getting an idea of what could be wrong with that by listening to this instructive clip from the Rockefeller documentary. In 1929, John D. Rockefeller Jr. was putting the final touches on the Riverside Church, a magnificent structure he had erected on Manhattan's Upper West Side. Built on a monumental scale, Riverside resembled Europe's great cathedrals, but only in its architecture. It certainly harks back to a Gothic cathedral, but as statues of saints and martyrs are placed around traditional cathedrals. There are statues of scientists and lawgivers. Uh, there's even a statue of Darwin in Riverside Church. Now that's a statement. While he remained committed to the Christian faith of his mother and grandmother, Junior had come to believe that scientific progress was an expression of God's will and the means to create God's kingdom on earth. This is what Junior embodies, both the old and the new. The old revivalist impulse to reform the world and the new measures that are coming out of science and business. And so business-like efficiency and scientific research become the new means, the new tools for achieving the old reform crusades. Christian fundamentalists in the 1920s saw Junior's embrace of science as a rejection of the Bible's teachings. They worried that the richest man in the world was extending his influence into the religious realm. One preacher put it in apocalyptic terms. When one man can control the financial world, the educational world, and practically the religious world, the day of the Antichrist is not far behind. By now, the Rockefeller fortune was estimated at $1 billion, invested not only in the companies that once made up Standard Oil, but also in banking and in new industries. Armed with his vast wealth, Junior had become as formidable a philanthropist as his father had been a businessman. Sometimes, he even employed similar tactics. Father had this great love and joy in opening up wherever he was, whether it was Maine or Tarrytown or Wyoming, the beauty of nature so people could share. He took us on voyages to see America. We were camping and building log cabins and riding horseback and we were hiking and then Nelson and I were avid photographers. So we were taking pictures and looking for the best view wherever we went. During a family trip to Wyoming, 
Junior was awed by the majestic Teton Mountains. Their beauty, he said, surpassed anything he had ever beheld. What he saw below, in the town of Jackson Hole, dismayed him. He saw the honky-tonks and, and newsstands and so on that were being put in the view of the beautiful Teton Mountains and that persuaded him to buy the land and give that to what is now a part of Grand Teton National Park. Junior probably spent somewhere around $13 million in acquiring land around Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Initially, as did most of the Rockefellers, he bought that through a cover company. Nothing surprising. Anytime the Rockefeller name got involved, prices skyrocketed. Nothing illegal about it, though probably he got some uh, extra special help from the Park Service identifying acreage. The way Junior acquired the Grand Tetons was a substantial use of power. And in that sense, the philanthropic impulse is not necessarily different from Standard Oil. Remember, Senior thought that Standard Oil was not just a profit-making corporation, but a way of making the world a better place. Junior's not-for-profit enterprises were not different in that regard. Like the independent refiners crushed by Standard Oil, local businessmen were outraged. He encountered tremendous opposition and uh, resentment. Uh, there were dude ranch operators and local cattlemen who felt that these were rich folks from back east who were throwing their weight around and trying to ruin their way of life. And they didn't see it as a gift. They saw it as this rich family that was pushing them around. And it was um, a protracted battle. is beautiful but it was developed in the way it was because junior thought that's the way it ought to be and he had the money and the contacts to make it happen let's think for a moment about both what information we were just presented with and how it was presented to us firstly you'll notice that that clip about the teton mountain episode was preceded by the story about the riverside church in manhattan while the story about the Riverside Church was purportedly showing us how people at the time were scared of the growing power of the Rockefeller family outside of their traditional bounds of the business world and into such things as the religious world, what was subtly encoded into that information about the Riverside Church and something that would have been subconsciously picked up on by the sophisticated urban intellectuals of the day is that those who were against this growing, encroaching consolidation of power in the hands of the Rockefeller Foundation were the types of country bumpkins who would have been against Darwin and evolution and who framed their debate in religious terms such as the Antichrist. Equating this type of language with people who are scared of Rockefeller power is designed to subconsciously make those in sophisticated intellectuals think that there's something wrong with people who are afraid of Rockefeller power. If you're afraid of the Rockefeller family fortune, then you must be afraid of science. You must be a backwards country bumpkin. You must be a religious zealot. And it's in that context that the Teton Mountain story is presented to us. When you boil the Teton Mountain story down, what it amounts to is John D. Rockefeller Jr. didn't like the way that that area looked 
So he bought everybody out and cleared them out of the place. I mean, this is the ultimate vanity ego project, framed, of course, again, subtly by that documentary, in terms that most people today would understand in glowing positive terms. Oh, well, he was doing an environmental good. He was helping save the environment and keep nature clean and pristine from those dirty, cancerous humans whose development is a lesion upon this land. And we understand that debate in those glowing environmental terms these days to understand that Rockefeller was doing a great thing and not just serving his own ego or trying to preserve his own private little playground, using, as the documentary admits, highly underhanded means of doing so, buying farmers out through front companies. Again, this is not the most damaging information about the Rockefeller Foundation, but it's just to give an idea of how this type of foundation money can be used for personal pet ego projects. What's much more chilling than the idea that this money is being used for these types of ego projects is the idea that the monetary muscle of this foundation money is not just being flexed to change the environmental landscape of America, or indeed the world, but to change its geopolitical landscape, its social landscape, its religious landscape, that this money can be wielded in ways that the average person who does not have access to these types of funds... Remember, this was back in the day when a billion dollars was worth hundreds of times what it's worth today, that this immense fortune could be used for other purposes, the likes of which most people can't dream of. To start getting into this actual research, we have to turn away from this whitewashed documentary and start getting into real sources. We'll turn now to an amazing interview that the famed journalist G. Edward Griffin conducted in the 1980s with someone named Norman Dodd. Norm Dodd was one of the chief researchers on the Reese Committee, a congressional committee set up in the 1950s to investigate the tax-exempt foundations and the way that they were working to subvert and undermine the U.S. government unconstitutionally. This committee, of course, was opposed by the key power players in Washington and the main money interests, including, of course, the foundations and those behind them. And thus the committee was derailed after only two weeks of hearings. But the committee did manage to conduct a fair degree of research into the matter before it was derailed. And Norman Dodd, as the key researcher, reveals in this interview some shocking information about what that committee found. The story begins when the Carnegie Endowment summoned Norman Dodd, the key researcher on the Reese Committee, to their offices to discuss some of the requests that the committee had made of the Carnegie Endowment. The Carnegie Endowment, of course, being another one of these tax-exempt foundations founded by one of the capitalist robber barons of the early 20th century, Andrew Carnegie. What the Carnegie Endowment trustees offered when they summoned Norman Dodd to their offices floored him. Essentially, they offered one of his researchers complete access to the minutes of the trustee meetings since the inception of the Carnegie Endowment in 1908. Norman Dodd, by his own admission, admitted that he, at the time, assessed those trustees who had offered this and realized that these people were too young to probably have ever examined the minutes themselves and thus probably didn't have a, a very good understanding of what the minutes would contain. Mr. Dodd, having already done some research on these tax-exempt foundations, had a pretty good idea of what they contained and knew that the trustees, if they were knowledgeable of what these minutes would reveal, would never have made such an offer. So, of course, he immediately took them up on the offer and appointed one of his researchers to go and examine the minutes of the Carnegie Endowment since its inception. This is the story of that researcher and what she discovered 
while looking through these minutes. It should be noted that Norman Dodd stresses in the interview that this researcher was unsympathetic to the causes of the committee, believing that the tax-exempt foundations were, of course, a philanthropic good in the world, and that they were not doing anything untoward to subvert or undermine the U.S. government. Let's listen to Norman Dodd telling G. Edward Griffin what this researcher discovered. Uh, She was um, level-headed and a very reasonably brilliant, capable lady. And her attitude toward the investigation was, what could possibly be wrong with foundations? They do so much good. Well, in the face of that sincere conviction of Catherine's, I went out of my way not to prejudice her in any way. But I did explain to her that she couldn't possibly cover 50 years of handwritten minutes in two weeks. So she would have to do what we call spot reading. And I blocked out certain periods of time to concentrate on. And off she went to New York. She came back at the end of two weeks with the following in the way of on on dictaphone belts. We are now at the year 1908, which was the year that the Carnegie began operations. And in that year, the trustees, meeting for the first time, raise a specific question, which they discuss throughout the balance of the year in a very learned fashion. And the question is, is there any means known more effective than war, assuming you wish to alter the life of an entire people? And they conclude that no no more effective means than war to that end is known to humanity. So then, in 1909, they raised the second question and discuss it. Namely, how do we involve the United States in a war? Well, I doubt at that time if there was any subject more removed from the thinking of most of the people of this country than its involvement in a war. There were intermittent shows in the Balkans, but I doubt very much if many people even knew where the Balkans were. Then finally, they answer that question as follows. We must control the State Department. And and then that very naturally raises the question of how do we do that? And um, they answer it by saying we must take over and control the diplomatic machinery of this country And finally, they resolve to aim at that as an objective. Then time passes, and we are eventually in a war, which would have been World War I. And at that time, they record on their minutes a shocking report in which they dispatched to President Wilson a telegram cautioning him to see that the war does not end too quickly. 
And finally, of course, we are, <clears throat> the war is over. At that time, their interest shifts over to preventing what they call a reversion of life in the United States to what it was prior to 1914 when World War I broke out. And they arrive at that point, they come to the conclusion that to prevent a reversion, we must control education in the United States. And they realize that that's a pretty big task. So it's to them, it is too big for them alone, so they approach the Rockefeller Foundation with the suggestion that that portion of education which is could be considered domestic be handled by the Rockefeller Foundation and that portion which is international should be handled by the endowment. And they then decide that the key to the success of these two operations lay in the, an alteration of the teaching of American history. So they approach four of the then most prominent teachers of American history in the country, people like Charles and Mary Byrd, and their suggestion to them is will they alter the manner in which they present this subject and they get turned down flat. So they then decide that it is necessary for them to do, as they say, build our own stable of historians. And, and then they approach the Guggenheim Foundation, which specializes in fellowships, and say, when we find young men in the process of studying for doctorates in the field of American history, and we feel that they are uh, the right caliber, will you grant them fellowships on our say-so? And the answer is yes. So under that condition, eventually they assemble 20. And they take this 20 potential teachers of American history to London. And there they're briefed into what is expected of them when, as and if, they secure appointments in keeping with the doctorates they will have earned. And um, that, new, that group of 20 historians ultimately becomes the nucleus of the American Historical Association. And then toward the end of the 1920s, the endowment grants to the American Historical Association $400,000 for a study of our history in a manner which points to what can this country be, can it look forward to in the future. And uh, that culminates in a seven-volume study, book, study, the last volume of which is, of course, in essence, a summary of the contents of the other six. And the essence of the last volume is the future of this country belongs to collectivism administered with characteristic American efficiency.
that's the story that ultimately grew out of and of course was what could have been presented by the members of this congressional committee to the Congress as a whole for just exactly what it said. And they never the, got to that point. This is the story that emerged from the minutes of the uh, of the uh, Carnegie Fund. That's right. The Carnegie Endowment. That's Fund. right. And uh, so it was official to that extent. I see. And Catherine Casey uh, brought all of these back in the form of uh, dictated notes or verbatim readings of the uh, of the minutes on dictaphone belts. Are those uh, in existence today? I don't know. Uh, if they are, they are. They're somewhere in the archives, under the under the um, control of the Congress House of Representatives. How many people actually heard those, or were they typed up transcripts made no. of them? How many people actually heard those uh, recordings? Oh, three maybe. Myself, my top assistants, and Catherine. Yeah, I might tell you this experience as far as its impact on Catherine Casey was concerned was she never was able to return to her law practice if it hadn't been for Carol Reese's ability to tuck her away in a job with the Federal Trade Commission. I don't know what would have happened to Catherine, but ultimately she lost her mind as a result of it. Terrible shock to her. It's, it's, it's a very rough experience to encounter proof of these kinds. Shocking information indeed. I certainly hope that none of my listeners lost their mind while listening to that information, but I would invite them to cogitate on what was just presented to them. Here we have the tax-exempt foundations admitting in their own words, in their own documents, that they actively attempted to use their power and money to steer the foreign policy of the United States, to steer it into war, and to prolong that war as long as it could, and then afterwards attempting to use their power and influence in conjunction with other foundations to steer the course of the American education system by controlling the funding to the core nucleus of academics in education. This is indeed shocking information, but there is much more shocking information about these foundations. Are you ready to lose your mind? Let's go down the rabbit hole. In the Rockefeller Archive Center Research Reports Online, you can find a report entitled Between Quality and Quantity, The Population Council and the Politics of Science Making in Eugenics and Demography, 1952-1965, by Edmund Ramsden, a PhD candidate at the Department of Political and Social Science at European University Institute in Florence, Italy. This report reads, in part, quote, in 1952, a small group of 31 scientists, demographers, social scientists, and birth control activists, all leaders in the field of population, met in Williamsburg for a two-day meeting at the invitation of John D. Rockefeller III and with the sponsorship of the National Academy of Sciences. It was from this meeting that the Population Council was founded. This group also included a number of eugenicists, such as H.J. Muller and Frederick Osborne, for whom the po problem of population was most importantly a question of the hereditary quality of the human population. Frederick Osborne was elected vice president of the new Population Council and later served as its executive vice president and president until 1959. 
An initial draft charter of the council submitted by Rockefeller stated that it aimed to promote research and apply existing knowledge to help develop such changes in the attitudes, habits, and environmental pressures affecting the lives of human beings, so that within every social and economic grouping, parents who are above the average in intelligence, quality of personality, and affection will tend to have larger-than-average families. This was taken directly from the back cover of the Eugenical News by Don McLean, and would later be dropped when Thomas Parin, a Catholic and former Surgeon General, told Rockefeller that he was sorely troubled by the implications. Such questions arise as the following. Who is to determine the parents who are above average in affection? The psychiatrists tell us that parental affection is a good trait, but only if it is manifested in moderation. Also, who would decide the person's having better-than-average personality? Frankly, the implication of this, while I know they were intended to have a eugenic implication, could readily be misunderstood as a Nazi master race philosophy. I have therefore recast this paragraph. End quote. That report goes on in extensive detail about the numerous connections between the Population Council, John D. Rockefeller III, and the eugenics movement. The eugenics movement, of course, was founded by Sir Francis Galton, Charles Darwin's cousin, and sought to find a scientific basis for the idea that qualitative aspects of human existence, such as intelligence or even affection, could be understood in genetic terms so that there could be bred a master race. This idea, of course, lost popularity after World War II, after the world had witnessed the horrors of the Nazi regime and the atrocious Holocaust which had been committed in the name of this master race philosophy. But this is where it gets downright frightening. The Rockefellers actually funded the German eugenicists. This comes from a report called Eugenics and the Nazis, the California Connection, which appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle. This report was filed on November 9, 2003, and reads in part, quote, The Rockefeller Foundation helped found the German eugenics program and even funded the program that Joseph Mengele worked in before he went to Auschwitz. By 1926, Rockefeller had donated some $410,000, almost $4 million in today's money, to hundreds of German researchers. In May 1926, Rockefeller awarded $250,000 towards creation of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Psychiatry. Among the leading psychiatrists at the German Psychiatric Institute was Ernst Rudin, who became director and eventually an architect of Hitler's systematic medical repression. Another in the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute's complex of eugenics institutions was the Institute for Brain Research. Since 1915, it had operated out of a single room. Everything changed when Rockefeller money arrived in 1929. A grant of $317,000 allowed the Institute to construct a major building and take center stage in German race biology. The Institute received additional grants from the Rockefeller Foundation during the next several years. Leading the Institute once again was Hitler's medical henchman Ernst Rudin. Rudin's organization became a prime director and recipient of the murderous experimentation and research conducted on Jews, gypsies, and others. Beginning in 1940, thousands of Germans taken from old-age homes, mental institutions, and other custodial facilities were systematically gassed. Between 50,000 and 100,000 were eventually killed. End quote. All of this funding is just the start of a much, much deeper rabbit hole about eugenics. 
and that will have to wait for another edition of the Corbett Report to receive the proper treatment that it would be due for a complete investigation. But for now, it's enough to know that there has now been conclusively proven links between the Rockefeller Foundation and the German eugenicists, which continued even after World War II, with John D. Rockefeller III's continuing obsession with his eugenics hobby. What other aspects of social engineering could the Rockefellers promote with their amazing fortune? Well, let's turn to another astounding audio clip to answer that question. A special televised meeting of the New York-based Council on Foreign Relations provides a window to the real story. The speaker, Vice President Dick Cheney, takes a question from David Rockefeller. Vice President, uh, I just enjoyed so much your whole speech, but I was particularly pleased that you gave such a strong endorsement for the free trade agreement for all the Americans, subject that has been of great concern to me for many years and particularly recently and I think it's absolutely essential for the strength of our economy. Rockefeller's role in the drive for an FTAA was a lot more central than he portrays. Rockefeller cultivated Latin American leaders who could be counted on to support such a proposal. Both the 1994 Miami summit and the FTAA proposal were conceived and nurtured by a Rockefeller created network. Prominent among the organizations sponsoring the Miami event were the Council of the Americas, founder and honorary chairman, David Rockefeller, the Americas Society, chairman, David Rockefeller, the Forum of the Americas, founder, David Rockefeller, the Institute for International Economics, financial backer and board member, David Rockefeller, the Trilateral Commission, founder and honorary chairman, David Rockefeller. Rockefeller's influence also extends to the current administration. He was chairman emeritus of the CFR when Vice President Dick Cheney once served as a director, a relationship that Cheney concealed during his congressional career. It's good to be back at the Council on Foreign Relations. As uh, Pete mentioned, I've been a member for a long time and was actually a director for some period of time. I never mentioned that when I was campaigning for re-election back home in Wyoming. <laughs> Now let's leave aside the disgusting laughter of those tyrannical jackals at the CFR who think it's funny that Dick Cheney hid his directorship of the CFR from his constituents back in Wyoming. Let's even leave aside the fact that a lot of media gatekeepers even denied the existence of the Council on Foreign Relations until relatively recently. What that clip gives a flavor of is the Rockefeller family penchant for globalism. The crusader for globalism in the Rockefeller family these days is David Rockefeller Sr., one of the third generation of Rockefeller dynasty. And he writes, in his own words, in his memoirs, the following, quote, For more than a century, ideological extremists at either end of the political spectrum have seized upon well-publicized incidents such as my encounter with Castro to attack the Rockefeller family for the inordinate influence they claim we wield over American political and economic institutions. Some even believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States, characterizing my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. One world, if you will. If that is the charge, I stand guilty, and I am proud of it. End quote. This globalist streak, of course, by no means originated with David Rockefeller. The streak goes much further back to John D. Rockefeller, Jr., 
And that information comes from a report from oldthinkernews.com entitled Rockefeller and the New World Religion. It's an extensively researched report which goes into great detail about the various religious institutions formed by the Rockefeller family. It seems that contrary to what the Rockefeller documentary that we listened to earlier would have you believe, the Rockefeller influence over religion was not merely the building of a church in Manhattan. Let's read from a section of the oldthinkernews.com report entitled The Federal Council of Churches. It reads in part, quote, The Federal Council of Churches presented its own solution in the early 1940s for a program for a just and durable peace upon the end of World War II. Not surprisingly, the Federal Council of Churches, which was merged with the National Council of Churches in 1950, received significant funding from John D. Rockefeller, Jr. Using a similar corporate structure of churches that the interchurch world movement first pioneered, the program developed several agendas for churches to adopt, with world government named as the ultimate goal. As reported by Time in 1942, these are the high spots of organized U.S. Protestantism's super-Protestant new program for a just and durable peace after World War II. Ultimately, a world government of delegated powers. Complete abandonment of U.S. isolationism. Strong immediate limitations on national sovereignty. International control of all armies and navies. A universal system of money so planned as to prevent inflation and deflation. Worldwide freedom of immigration. Progressive elimination of all tariff and quota restrictions on world trade. Autonomy for all subject and colonial peoples, with much better treatment for Negroes in the U.S. No punitive reparations, no humiliating decrees of war guilt, no arbitrary dismemberment of nations. A democratically controlled international bank to make development capital available in all parts of the world without the predatory and imperialistic aftermath so characteristic of large-scale private and governmental loans. This program was adopted last week by 375 appointed representatives of 30-odd denominations called together at Ohio Wesleyan University by the Federal Council of Churches. Every local Protestant church in the country will now be urged to get behind the program. As Christian citizens, its sponsors affirmed, we must seek to translate our beliefs into practical realities and to create a public opinion which will ensure that the United States shall play its full and essential part in the creation of a moral way of international living. The Federal Council of Churches program, as Time reports, was strikingly similar to Samuel Zane Batten's New World Order. The ultimate goal was a duly constituted world government of delegated powers, an international legislative body, an international court with adequate jurisdiction, international administrative bodies with necessary powers, and adequate international police forces and provision for enforcing its worldwide economic authority. End quote. It's important to note that that section dealing with the Federal Council of Churches and the resolution that was adopted by them was released in 1942. That's 60 years ago. And it reads like a laundry list of the goals of all the international institutions that have come, to, come into place today. The ones that we know as pro-business, anti-democratic institutions like the World Trade Organization. That David Rockefeller would have co-founded the Trilateral Commission in 1973 with its stated aim of fostering closer cooperation, i.e. economic integration, between America, Europe, and Japan is perhaps not surprising, nor the fact that he's intimately related to the Council on Foreign Relations, a body which has been instrumental in the United States for promoting the idea of a North American Union before it even existed in the form of the SPP. And for those who don't know what the SPP is, I would recommend that they go back and listen to Episode 8 of the Corbett Report. 
to get more information about the SPP and how CFR minions like Robert Pastor are instrumental proponents of this anti-democratic body. But I'm sure there are still those listeners out there who don't see the sinister bent in the globalist philosophy of a eugenicist power family like the Rockefellers. Perhaps an indication of where this is really heading is given in a quote from David Rockefeller, who was writing in the New York Times on August 10th, 1973. Quote, Whatever the price of the Chinese Revolution, it has obviously succeeded not only in producing more efficient and dedicated administration, but also in fostering high morale and community of purpose. The social experiment in China under Chairman Mao's leadership is one of the most important and successful in human history. End quote. Again, that is David Rockefeller Sr. writing in the New York Times, August 10th, 1973, praising Chairman Mao's disgusting and bloody social experiment in China. If that doesn't send shivers down your spine, then this will. We're going to turn now to an audio clip featuring an interview with Aaron Russo. Regular listeners to The Corbett Report will remember Aaron Russo from episode 14, Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist, in which Aaron Russo revealed some details about his relationship with Nicholas Rockefeller, one of the heirs to the Rockefeller dynasty. In the interview from episode 14, Aaron Russo shared how Nicholas Rockefeller shared details about 9-11 before it happened with Mr. Russo, and how that it was designed to construct a false war on terror paradigm in order to extend U.S. power abroad. Well, in this audio clip, Aaron Russo will go over some of those claims again, and get into even further detail about the ultimate end goal of these Rockefeller eugenicist Nazis. This audio clip comes from an excellent documentary entitled Zeitgeist, which can be easily found online. Again, you can get a direct link from my website, www.corbettreport.com. Let's listen to the audio clip from Zeitgeist. This is Aaron Russo, a filmmaker and former politician. To his left is Nicholas Rockefeller of the infamous Rockefeller banking and business dynasty. After maintaining a close friendship with Nicholas Rockefeller, Aaron eventually ended the relationship, appalled by what he had learned about the Rockefellers and their ambitions. Uh, I got a call one day from um, an attorney woman I knew, and she said, would you like to meet one of the Rockefellers? I said, sure, I'd love to. And uh, we became friends, and um, he began to divulge a lot of things to me. So he said to me one night, he said that uh, there's going to be an event there, and and out of that event, you're going to see we're going to go into Afghanistan. So we run pipelines from the Caspian Sea. We're going to go into Iraq to take the oil and establish a base in the Middle East. And we're going to go into Venezuela and, and try and get, and get rid of Chavez. And uh, the first two they've accomplished, Chavez they didn't accomplish. And uh, so you're going to see guys going into caves looking for, <laughs> looking for people uh, that they're never going to find. You know, he was laughing about the fact that you have this war on terror, there's no real enemy. He's talking about how by having this war on terror, you can never win it because this is, this is an eternal war. And so you can always keep taking people's liberties away. And I said, how are you going to convince people that this war is real? He said, but the media. The media can convince everybody it's real. I mean, you know, it's just that you keep talking about things. You keep saying it over and over and over again. And eventually people believe it. You know, you created the Federal Reserve in 1913 through lies. You create 9-11, which is another lie. 
do 9-11, you, then you're fighting a war on terror, and now all of a sudden you go into Iraq, which was another lie, and now they're going to do Iran. You know, and it's all one thing leading to another, leading to another, leading to another. Now, I would say, that, why, what are you doing this for? What, what, what's the point of this thing? You have all the money in the world you ever want. You have all the power. I said, you know, you're hurting people. It's, it's not a good thing. And he would say, what do you care about the people for? Take care of yourself and you take care of your family. And then I said to him, what's the ultimate, what are the ultimate goals here? So the ultimate, the goal, the ultimate goal is to get everybody in this world chipped with the chip, with the RFID chip, and uh, have all money be on those chips and everything on those chips. And if anybody wants to protest what we do or violate what we want, we just turn off the chip. That's right, microchipped. In 2005, Congress, under the pretense of immigration control and the so-called war on terrorism, passed the Real ID Act, under which it is projected by May 2008 you will be required to carry around a federal identification card which includes on it a scannable barcode with your personal information. However, this barcode is only an intermediary step before the card is equipped with a Verichip RFID tracking module which will use radio frequencies to track your every move on the planet. If this sounds foreign to you, please note that the RFID tracking chip is already in all new American passports. And the final step is the implanted chip, which many people have already been manipulated into accepting under different pretenses. We have a Florida family who are really pioneers in a brave new world. They have volunteered to be the first ever to have microchip identification devices implanted into their body. After 9-11, I was really concerned um, with the security of my family. I wouldn't mind having something planted permanently in my arm that would identify me. In the end, everybody will be locked into a monitored control grid where every single action you perform is documented. And if you get out of line, they can just turn off your chip. For at that point in time, every single aspect of society will revolve around interactions with the chips. This is the picture that is painted for the future if you open your eyes to see it. A centralized one world economy where everyone's moves and everyone's transactions are tracked and monitored, all rights removed. The most incredible aspect of all. These totalitarian elements will not be forced upon the people. The people will demand them. For the social manipulation of society through the generation of fear and division has completely detached humans from their sense of power and reality. A process which has been going on for centuries if not millennia. Religion, patriotism, race, wealth, class, and every other form of arbitrary separatist identification and thus conceit has served to create a controlled population utterly malleable in the hands of the few. Divide and conquer is the motto and as long as people continue to see themselves as separate from everything else they lend themselves to being completely enslaved. The men behind the curtain know this and they also know that if people ever realize the truth of their relationship to nature and the truth of their personal power the entire manufactured zeitgeist they prey upon will collapse like a house of cards. The exciting thing is that people are waking up to the true power paradigm and the house of cards is collapsing. People are beginning to question the Federal Reserve. People actually know what the Federal Reserve is now. People know now that a group of private banking families wrested control of the ability to print money from the U.S. government to whom it rightfully belongs. 
So now the U.S. government has to go cap in hand to borrow money from these private banking families to fund the U.S. government when they could print the money for themselves at no interest. Who does this system benefit? The private banking interests that control the Federal Reserve. And though, of course, the 1913 Federal Reserve original shareholders list has never been made public, one would be foolish to think that the Rockefellers had no hand in it, especially given David Rockefeller's ascension through the banking ranks to become the president and CEO of Chase Manhattan Bank, one of the largest banking institutions in the world. People are also waking up to the lies that continue to be used to control us in the war on terror, including that foundational lie of all, the lie of 9-11. And for some very exciting street activism, I suggest you go to YouTube and look for the We Are Change video, in which We Are Change confronts David Rockefeller at his home in Manhattan and questions him about the San Francisco Citizens Grand Jury, which found him indictable for the offenses of 9-11. This is extremely exciting and signs that people are becoming more aware of who the real men behind the curtains are. And for more on that, I suggest you go to the Zeitgeist movie to check out some of that information. So let's end things on that positive note. Let's just take a listen to this audio clip of an interview with David Rockefeller, conducted by Benjamin Fulford. Now make what you will of Benjamin Fulford and his information, and I think he probably does sincerely believe it, but that's very different from actually having the truth. But at least at this part in this interview, he does a miraculous thing when he introduces David Rockefeller to the Ron Paul Revolution. Let's listen to this clip from the audio interview conducted in Japan a few months ago. And um, what about the uh, uh, candidate Ron Paul who's talking about bringing the powers of the Federal Reserve back to the U.S. government uh, you know, to, under the presidential control or control of Congress. I haven't read about that. Is that just an issue? Well, he's a, he's, a, he's a, one of the Republican... Uh, he's a Republican candidate, yeah. and that's what he's publicly calling for. So, I... Uh, I would not look upon that as one of the great issues that needs to be addressed at this time. I suggest you check out that interview, if only for the video footage that goes along with that audio clip. It's priceless to watch the look of abject terror on David Rockefeller's face when he finds out there is a candidate for president of the United States who is running a campaign based on the idea of eliminating the Federal Reserve. It is priceless to watch these people being confronted, this dynastic family that's dominated American life so much for the last century, facing a true people's revolution in the form of Ron Paul. And once again, I urge all my listeners to check out Ron Paul and his candidacy for President of the United States. Let's leave it there. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett. Please join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report.
And an interesting um, thing about the United Nations, of course, we know that Rockefeller um, bought the um, land for it, correct? Sure. Okay. Now, of course, the Rockefellers are involved in this. I don't think I have to, you know, go on a limb for that one. I think everyone knows that one. Um, interesting enough about the land that they bought um, for the United Nations, would you like to take a wild guess what that place was before the United Nations built investment on it? I already know. Yeah, I think we talked about this, didn't we? Yeah. yeah, it was a slaughterhouse. Now, why does that make a difference? Because millions of gallons of blood were spilt to the ground. Huh. And sacrifice is a major part of any major occult religion.